So we'll just read question 66 of the Westminster Larger Confession, or Larger Catechism, and then we'll jump to 69. And so if you'd read aloud with me the answer in response. What is that union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically, yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. And now question 69. What is the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ? The communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. Amen. Faithful summary of God's word and uh, introduction in that way uh, by uh, catechetical reading tonight. For our lesson, uh, last, well, two weeks ago, rather, we considered M is for the means of grace. Last week we looked at N is for the 95 Theses, but two weeks ago we looked at M is for the means of grace, the word of God preached and the holy sacraments, and we saw that the Holy Spirit is the dispenser of God's grace. He gives special saving grace to the elect sinners, elected in Christ, in the context of the covenant of grace, in ordinarily in the church, in order to restore and consummate in them the image of God. And so today we're going to ask and answer the following question. What is the operational framework that the Holy Spirit uses to grant saving grace to the elect? In other words, is there an orderly strategy an orderly strategy of the Holy Spirit in the work of applying the completed redemption, what Christ has already completed for us? And the answer is yes, and we'll be getting to that, that this is the O uh, tonight. The lesson is O is for ordo salutis, which is a Latin phrase that means the order of salvation. There is an orderly way that the Holy Spirit comes and applies the finished work of Christ to us. So we'll consider how the Holy Spirit forges this vital union between Christ and the elect to apply his benefits to them in an orderly way. And we speak of this in, uh, in that term, uh, referring to the ordo salutis, but then also union with Christ. Union with Christ. And those two are really connected. I want you to think about that tonight, union with Christ and the ordo salutis. Kind of by way of analogy, when we think of the Trinity, we cannot speak of the one divine essence apart from speaking of and thinking of the three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And neither can we speak of the one union that we have with Christ apart from the distinct benefits or blessings that we receive from that Union. So there's the, the one and the many together in that sense. Now, what are the distinct benefits or blessings that we receive from Christ? Well, we saw that in that, that second question and answer we looked at in the Westminster Larger Catechism, 69 there, where it refers to the order of salvation and the different benefits. And it says, you know, it speaks of the effective calling or the effectual calling that we receive 
the Holy Spirit calling us out of darkness and into light, uh, regeneration of our heart, you know, the renewal of our being within us, faith and repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. And so when we speak of the Ordo Salutis, we are speaking of various blessings that are applied to the elect and their relationship to one another. Each, each blessing is related to one another, how they are logically related. And the great proof text for this idea of the Ordo Salutis is found in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 to 30, where William Perkins, the Puritan Reformed preacher, called this passage the golden chain of salvation. Maybe you've heard of that, the golden chain of salvation, where Paul says there, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, And so here we see, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so in that verse, in the way that it's laid out for us, according to the Apostle Paul, there is a certain order in the blessings that the elect receive from Christ. And they have a relationship with each other. And we'll kind of circle back at the end of the lesson tonight to examine that more in detail. Now, regarding the Ordo Salutis, there are some other uh, parts of the Reformed Confessions that speak of this. For example, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, 3.6 lists the blessings in this way. It says, As God has appointed the elect unto glory, so has he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his spirit working in due season. They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So each elect of God, each one, each believer Uh, Each one that the Father chose before the foundation of the world goes through this process and receives all of these benefits that Christ won for us. Now in our own um, Reformed uh, tradition, the Canons of Dort, uh, Head 1, Article 7, also lists the blessings in connection with their union with Christ. It says this, that he did this, the Father did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator the head of all those chosen and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his son, to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. Now, with that, those definitions kind of before us, when we speak of the Ordo Salutis, it does not attempt to capture a temporal order, but rather a logical order to this. Uh, it's kind of complicated and mysterious, but what it's trying to demonstrate, what the reformers and reform confessions try to demonstrate is that there is a relationship between the blessings so that we understand each blessing uh, in connection 
to the one that preceded it. So each subsequent blessing, in a sense, is connected and depends upon the former blessings in that golden chain. Uh, it's not, we can't just simply reduce them to temporal or logical aspects. There's a mystery here. Uh, we're talking about the operation of the Holy Spirit, how he comes and applies the finished work of Christ. It's obviously going to be filled with great mystery. Uh, but as Jesus taught the Spirit, he moves, right? And how he wants to and his operations are hidden from our view, but we see its effects like the wind. Uh, and so there's mystery, but we can also understand this and study it together. Now, of our union with Christ, the Reformed confessions say the following. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question uh, 66, we read, what is that union which the elect have with Christ? The union which the elect have with Christ is the work of God's grace, whereby they are spiritually and mystically yet really and inseparably joined to Christ as their head and husband, which is done in their effectual calling. So union with Christ, it's one of my favorite subjects to study and consider and meditate on in Scripture, and it can be understood in a variety of different ways. For instance, in eternity past, in eternity past, we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So our union started uh, before the creation of the world with Christ. Also objectively outside of us, uh, Christ entered into human history as our mediator to live, to die, and rise again for his chosen ones in our place because of that union that we have with him. And then subjectively too, personally, we could say, the spirit of Christ now indwells each of us personally to communicate Christ to us and to communicate to us all of his benefits. My professor Michael Horton says it this way. We could put it in this way. On one hand, we in Christ refers to us sharing his election, humanity, life of obedience, atoning death, resurrection, justification, holiness, and glorification. We are in the family with legal inheritance. On the other hand, Christ in us, that personal and kind of subjective reality, refers to regeneration and sanctification, the hope of glory. The family of God is in us, and we begin to resemble the family of God. Amazing. Uh, in short, what Herman Bobbing says is also true. There is no sharing in the benefits of Christ other than communion with his person. It is by union or communion with the person of Christ that we receive all of his blessings and benefits he has won for us. Now, as we looked at in the question and answer 69, the communion in grace which the members of the invisible church have with Christ is their partaking of the virtue of his mediation in their justification, adoption, sanctification, and whatever else in this life manifests their union with him. And so the Holy Spirit, he forges this invisible bond and union that we have with Christ. It's hidden from us, but it manifests itself in life by producing the very blessings that flow from it. Uh, and so think of the union that we have with Christ, not as a step uh, in the Ordo Salutis, but rather uh, the, the fountainhead from which all of these blessings in the Ordo Salutis come from our union with Christ himself. Again, like the Trinity, we can't separate the two. We can't separate the divine essence from the three distinct persons, and we cannot separate the blessings that we receive from Christ from his person and our union with him. Now, as way of, by way of explanation of the union with Christ, 
that we have, we can think of it like a diamond that has different uh, fat facades on it, different faces on the diamond. And so we can think of seven different aspects of the union that we have with Christ. Uh, And so the first one is this. Union with Christ is covenantal. It is covenantal. Uh, Union that we have with Christ is a union that he forged with the elect, founded upon that eternal covenant of redemption before the creation of the world between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit when they chose certain people from among the masses of sinners to save and redeem through the, the plan of redemption that Christ himself committed to. He committed to as our mediator. And a great passage in defense of this concept is in John 17, 1 through 2, where it says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to those whom you have given him. And so from that text, we see that in eternity past, the father chose the elect and gave them to his son to be their mediator, to be the guarantor of their life and eternal life. And so in eternity past, the son, in a sense, he joined himself to the elect, to us, and committed his whole self to them in a vow of love. And in his incarnation and death on the cross, he fulfilled that vow. He fulfilled his part of that covenant commitment. So we shouldn't think of our union with Christ as something that only begins when the Holy Spirit works faith into our heart. Because, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so even even before we came to believe, we had a covenantal union with Christ because of that commitment that Christ made before the foundation of the world to come and redeem us. So that's the first part. Uh, The second one is this union with Christ is legal or forensic. Legal or forensic in the sense of the justification of the elect already occurred, so to speak, when Christ was declared righteous by the Father, vindicated from a false condemnation by the world, uh, when he was resurrected from the dead, and he was vindicated and declared righteous not only for himself, but also for the elect. Now Paul speaks of this in Romans 4, verse 25, where he says that Christ was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So he was raised, his resurrection was for our justification. So in a sense, the objective justification of believers, our declaration as righteous in Christ was in a way done before we even had faith, before we even responded in faith. How? Because of his commitment as surety. Well, Christ received all of our imputed righteousness when he went to the cross for us to suffer in our place, condemned, receiving the punishment we deserved, And so then Christ in that way canceled the document of death that stood against us, as Paul says in Colossians. Then in his resurrection, that public declaration of God's divine verdict came. He is just. My son is just, righteous. Not only is Christ righteous, but every elect represented by him is just and righteous in him, right? So while the resurrection of Christ is that legal foundation It's the legal foundation of our justification. It's only through the live preaching of the gospel when we hear the good news of that verdict that we we are 
forgiven and declared righteous based on the merits of Christ alone, that the Holy Spirit actually unites each elect personally to Christ to receive justification on a personal level. So we have that legal foundation of our union with Christ when he was raised from the dead, and then that's personally applied to us when the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts. And so, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ took our sin upon himself, suffered in our place, so that he can now give us freely his righteousness. And the declaration and verdict of God's um, declaration that his son is just is now uh, given to us. But notice this, that this legal union with Christ that we have, according to it, the righteousness of Christ already belongs to the elect prior to their having faith. And Herman Bavink explains it in this way. He says, The work of Christ is complete and incapable of being increased or diminished. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away from it. It is complete. It is perfect. The Father rests in his finished work and seals it with the resurrection of his Son. All the benefits that the Spirit bestows in the covenant of grace, he bestows through and according to Christ. But there is a difference between property and possession. Like a child, even before he is born, has right to all the goods of his father. But only in time when he reaches a mature age does he take possession of them. Also, all those who in time believe in Jesus, already before they believed, had property rights as children, and so only take possession of their inheritance by faith. So even before we believed, you who are elect in Christ, you had property rights to the righteousness of Christ, but you take possession of that when the Holy Spirit gives you faith. And that justification becomes yours on a, on a very personal level. And so we have legal rights, the goods of Christ. Uh, and in time, when the Holy Spirit works faith into our hearts, we take possession of them. And so that was, that, was that, that aspect. Now, our union is also spiritual. And spiritual here, not so much in opposition to physical, but the spiritual as in the Holy Spirit, who is the link of our vital union with Christ. He's the one who links us and unites us to Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. So the Spirit has united us in one body to the head, which is Christ. Right? Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to him. And so the Holy Spirit brings to us Christ and his presence to us, so much so that the Holy Spirit here in that text is called the Spirit of Christ. He's the one that unites us to him and brings Christ to us. Acts 2, 33 says, Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received, that is Christ, from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured out what you now see and hear. And so in his bodily absence, as Christ ascended bodily from the grave and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, now we still have union with Christ, but it is through his Holy Spirit, whom he has sent to unite us to him. And in that way, through the Holy Spirit, Christ fulfills his promise that he made to the disciples and to us, that surely I am with you always the very end of the age. He's with us. 
united to us by his Holy Spirit. So our union is spiritual as well by the Holy Spirit. It is also a vital union, vital. The Spirit gives life to the elect through their union with Christ. He gives us vital life, vitality. In John 15, 5, we hear this great illustration and analogy from Jesus where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, of this passage, the reformer John Calvin comments, Christ focuses mainly on this, that the vital sap that is all, that is all life and force proceeds from him alone. The vital sap to produce Good fruit is found in Christ and in him alone. And by our union with him, we receive that. Christ is not simply an example, therefore, for us to follow, although his example is always instructive and helpful. As Michael Horton says, sanctification is not a life of striving to imitate Christ, but it is a search for all the blessings in Christ and not in us. It is drawing out the sap from Christ himself and growing in likeness, uh, of him. Now, if you're in Christ with faith, the life and strength that you need to kill your sin, therefore, is not found in your own heart, but in Christ himself for you. And remember that you already are in Christ and that he is yours and you are his and every day in life. You do not have to cultivate this vitality out of the thin air, but you just have to take it in and lay a hold of it by faith. Abide in his love. So it's a vital union. It is also a personal and communal union. As individuals, we are vitally united to Christ, but our personal union in Christ as the head cannot be separated apart from our union with his body, the rest of his body. And so this is called the mystical union sometimes by theologians, uh, the mystical union between Christ and his church, the body. Colossians 1.18 says this, Christ is the head of the body, which is the church. And so there's this union, uh, mystically, as a body is connected to the head, right? So Christ is connected to his church and all its members. Then in chapter 2, verse 19, it says that from this head, the whole body, nourished and united by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. And we can think of this um, in application, the Lord's Supper Part of the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to strengthen our vital union with Christ, kind of drawing that sap out of the, the vine as branches so that we produce fruit. So on that individual level. But more than that, symbolically, not only do we have union with Christ, but we also have union with one another communally as the body of Christ. And so uh, we are, in a sense, growing in love and union with one another as we are connected to Christ who is the head equally. And so it is a communal and personal union. And then lastly, or not lastly, second to last, it is an eschatological union. Eschatological is a fancy uh, big word referring to the end times, the end goal of this union. It's directed, this union we have with Christ, it's directed towards this end goal of glory, right? Remember that with the resurrection from the dead, Christ has now inaugurated in this present evil age the kingdom of God here and now. And he reigns in heaven in, in anticipation of all that is to come and has sent his Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of the age to come. And so united to Christ by the operation of the spirit, 
believers participate in the powers of the age to come. We have a, a unique participation even now in the powers of the age to come. And in, in a way, I think of it this way, the Holy Spirit is kind of pulling us into the future, pulling us little one from one degree of glory into another until we arrive at, la- at last in glory with him. Therefore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. And so we have a foretaste by union with Christ of the glory that is to come. And also, he says in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Since then you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you have died, and your life is hidden now with Christ and God. When Christ, who your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so, Christ himself, who is the resurrection and life, he is our life, and we are connected even now to the very source of, of eternal life, the source that will sustain us for all of eternity. It's an eschatological union, and it's also, lastly, an unbreakable union. Unbreakable. The bond of love and unity between Christ and the elect is firm and cannot be canceled, cannot be annulled. It's a solid marriage that there's no possibility of divorce among Christ and his elect. Not because we are so faithful, to the contrary, but because Christ has been so faithful and always will be. In love, the Father has sealed this marriage between us, Christ and the church, by the Holy Spirit and guarantees it for all of eternity. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, he says, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And so that's why, because it's an unbreakable union, as Paul says in Romans 8, 39, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So those are the seven different aspects of our union with Christ. And now briefly, uh, to conclude, we'll look at the defense of the Ordo Salutis. Um, There are several texts that speak about this. We'll just consider four. The first one is in 1 John 3, 9. 1 John 3, 9, where it says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born again. And so from here, we first consider those who have received the the blessing of regeneration, of being born again. Well, those will necessarily go on to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit such that they cannot continue in the practice, the habitual practice of sin. And so John, in his letter here, he's implying that there is an order. The blessing of sanctification, growth and holiness, is the logical response and continuation of regeneration. Regeneration always pours out and continues in the blessing of sanctification. Okay, now another text, Romans 7, 4. Romans 7, 4 implies the same logical order. Where it says, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that, you, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So regeneration can also be thought of, as Paul mentions here, the death of our old man, the death of our old self. We have died, our old self. And now, by the resurrection of Christ applied to us, 
We have been raised to newness of life. There's a new self in us. And that always results, as he ends there, with the blessing that we would bear fruit for God. It always results in bearing fruit for God, which is sanctification. There's a logical order there, right? Regeneration precedes sanctification and results in it. And then Romans 8.30, again, that one passage we already considered briefly, the golden chain, those whom he predestined, he also called, those whom he called, he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so here we see this unbreakable chain that begins with the blessing of predestination and then speaks of the blessings that come in time and space when we are effectually called out of darkness into light, given faith, and justified by faith, and then concludes there in, in uh, glorification, which is the end, the end game of sanctification, right? And so in Paul's mind, if God predestined you, he will call you in time, in his timing. He will call you, and when he calls you, he will justify you, and when he justifies you, he will also sanctify you until you are glorified. It is a golden chain that cannot be broken. Because united to Christ, the elect already, as we saw, have the rights, the legal rights to these goods that Christ won for us. It is only a matter of time and by the operation of the Spirit that we come to possess all of them. And you will possess all of them if you are united to Christ by faith. And so we've seen that you know, salvation flows from God's sovereign plan, His grace, even in eternity past. We are united to Christ and we receive now all these blessings by the operation of the Holy Spirit who forges that union with him, that vital uh, union that we have with Christ. But again, union with Christ is not like, we shouldn't think of it as the first step that initiates a domino effect of subsequent blessings, but rather, as John Murray, the theologian, says, union with Christ is the source of all the blessings in the Ordo Salutis. It is by communion with the person of Christ that we receive in time each of these subsequent blessings. And we'll finish with this uh, quote from Herman Bobbink, where he says, The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ who on the one hand takes everything from Christ and freely unites himself to his word, but that on the other hand, from the day of Pentecost, personally dwells in the church and in each one of its members and fills them with all the fullness of God, all the benefits of salvation that the Father has bestowed on the church from eternity and the, those which the Son acquired are at the same time gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thus Christ by the Spirit and the Father himself through Christ incorporates all his children into the most intimate communion with himself. So may we therefore take advantage of this vital union that the Holy Spirit has forged between us in Christ until we together reach that perfect, eternal, glorious communion with our triune God. Amen. We'll conclude there. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time of study, uh, this deep look into the operation of the Holy Spirit and how our union with Christ, in a sense, began in eternity past and that now in our own lives, in your time, uh, and according to your plan, by your spirit, you have personally united us to Christ to receive from him, from his person, all the benefits that he has won for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And that we have the guarantee and promise by your Holy Spirit that you will continue applying each of those blessings, sanctifying us until at last 
we are glorified, as you have promised, in Christ. And we have perfect, full communion and union with you, our God. We thank you and ask that this uh, truth would be impressed upon our hearts and give us a time of fruitful discussion even now. In Jesus' name, amen.